0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Eric Gunther. Yeah, and today I have uh, Eric Gunther. He's an associate research scientist in neurology at Yale, and uh, he's working on uh, Alzheimer's and uh, trying to assist in the drug discovery, drugs that will actually work for it. So, Eric, thanks for coming.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, so tell me, um, how did you end up in Alzheimer's research in the first place? What uh, spurred you to move in that direction?
1: Ah, well, I don't know. I'm a neuroscientist, and uh, I've always been interested in seeing if um, that interest could actually be brought to some sort of benefit. Um, the lab that I'm in actually studies uh, neurodegeneration and neuroregeneration. We started off on spinal cord injury and, uh, and repair of spinal cord injury, and we moved into neurodegeneration. And when the lab discovered the receptor for the, the A-beta protein, the amyloid beta protein that causes plaques to form in the brains of alzheimer's patients and most people think it's the reason people get alzheimer's when we discovered the mechanism of action for that, that protein um it suggested a way that uh, that we could address it with some sort of pharmacology strategy
0: yeah i've heard that there's been about 150 different uh, drug yeah. trials for alzheimer's right. and they've all failed
1: yeah that is true um uh, in large part that's thought to be because the behavioral symptoms that are diagnostic for Alzheimer's come late in the disease. The, it's a progressive disease, It's a chronic neurodegeneration, and it's only when that's fairly progressed, when the neurodegeneration is, has uh, has happened for a decade or more, that you start having these behavioral problems. Your memory starts suffering, and you start becoming demented, disoriented. And so, attacking the disease at a late stage like that is kind of closing the barn door after the cows have left. It's much more important. Most likely
0: to address it early on well what about the model itself? Are there any any rumblings or alternate models instead of the beta amyloid uh, plaque accumulation?
1: Well, the amyloid hypothesis is the uh, the most commonly accepted hypothesis, but we don't know for sure I mean we haven't uh, haven't carried in people yet, and that'll be the the bottom line. Um, <clears throat> most of those drug trials you were referring to were geared uh, against amyloid, the amyloid protein. Um, And again, the reason that they probably didn't work is because that's the trigger. The amyloid protein buildup in the brain is what kicks off all these pathological changes in the brain. And they have kind of a life of their own as they progress. Taking away the initial insult does like getting kicked and having a bruise, right? I mean, if you you try treating the the bruise after someone's kicked you, it's not going to really help the, the healing. Um, the the idea is to prevent the kicking in the first place, and that's probably going to have the most uh, the most you know, the highest prospect for success anyway.
0: So can can you run through for people that don't know you know what's the process by which we think people get get Alzheimer's? What happens first, and then next, and next, and next?
1: Yeah. So well, the like you're saying with the amyloid hypothesis, um, the uh, the thought is that there is an accumulation of. A beta or beta amyloid in the brain. Um, it, it starts off as a, a small protein, and uh, some of the some of the uh, interesting work that's coming out now as to why the brain produces that is that this small protein is an antimicrobial peptide. It's generated by the brain to fight infection, viral or, or bacterial infection, um, and. After a while, and it works, but after a while, 20 years later, you get this accumulation of that peptide in the brain, and uh, and it causes the, the pathological changes.
0: Once the peptide is so, accumulated, how does it affect yeah. changes, and what are the changes?
1: Right. Well, so the changes in the brain, you get neurodegeneration. Um, ultimately, you get synapse degeneration to start off with. Uh, you have impaired uh, communication between neurons. It's mediated by the synapses. <clears throat> um, we measure that. We can... Take neurons um, and culture them in vitro and treat them with this peptide, and we see that their their ability to communicate uh, is impaired and uh, when we discovered the mechanism by which that takes place, we found that we could um, stop that, uh, stop that interaction, and the ability of the neurons to communicate um, was restored but after that in, in, the, in the disease and in, in human disease, after that. Um, that takes place a synaptic impairment takes place there's a subsequent uh synaptic degeneration so on either side of the synapse um you have retraction of the the two components of the neurons that are are communicating Um, Mm. and then finally subsequent to that you have more downstream pathological changes you have wholesale brain cell death neuron death um and uh and also uh phosphorylation of a protein called tau um that's that's one of the two uh hallmarks that you can see in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. That we think that's downstream of A beta, of the A beta action. Um you were referring to there being different models for uh what causes Alzheimer's. Some people think that tau is the main bad actor and that's the initial insult and the, the A beta isn't the, the first one. But I I think it's fair to say that's it's a possibility, but that opinion's in the minority.
0: Are these uh changes in the brain happening happening? adjacent to the beta amyloid tissue, or is it all over the brain?
1: It, it, uh, it starts progressively, um, and it is relatively in the area where you see the plaques, and I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but there's this small peptide, as I was saying, that gets expressed by the brain in order to fight uh, infections, possibly. <clears throat> then those uh, those peptides, they aggregate. They form these small uh, clumps that diffuse around, and and then those eventually, we believe, um, accumulate into the large plaques, which are these really obvious uh, gummy deposits in the brain. And interestingly enough, it's not the initial peptides, not the short length that has the toxicity. And it's not the plaques that have the toxicity. It's this intermediate form that's called an oligomer, this small diffusible aggregate that can move around the brain um, and and bind its receptor to, uh, to kill the neurons.
0: Have, have, um people sequenced the beta amyloid plaques to see what uh, they look like, their structure, you know, are they heterogeneous? Um,
1: The the, the sequence of the peptide is known. um, That's been known for a long time. But the actual structure of the the aggregate, that's an area of study. And we're actually, our lab is actually investigating that, trying to figure out the structure, the three-dimensional structure of the oligomer, of that intermediate diffusible form that has toxic action on neurons.
0: Does it appear to have a structure, or is, do you know if it's homogeneous or heterogeneous?
1: Uh, it is. Uh, there are a lot of different structures. Each of those, so it's an, a heterogeneous assemblage, but each of the structures are likely to be defined. <laughs> uh, so so the, the, the single peptide, the short length of protein, the A-beta monomer, has a particular sequence, and it's unstructured. So there's there's no real question about what three-dimensional structure has. It doesn't really have any. It just sort of moves around uh, in space. Um, but when that aggregate aggregates, it's likely that it follows different pathways. Um, <clears throat> and then ultimately, when it, it uh, aggregates into the plaque, that's kind of a mess. Uh, that has a certain structure. It's called a beta sheet structure predominantly, but the, the details of that are also unknown.
0: Do, do the, um, at any of the stages, does it tend to create a microenvironment that's different from you know, other parts of the brain or what used to be those areas of the brain?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. There, um, there have been studies that have looked at the plaques and seen if they are toxic themselves, if there's a greater concentration of uh, the oligomer, the intermediate form that's given off by the plaque. Um, and and by and large, it looks like the plaques are pretty stable; that they don't actually release that toxic component. There are some studies that look at the local effect of the plaques on neurons, on the axon and neurons, and and it appears that the plaques interrupt um, the flow of else, different parts of the of the neuron or or. Um, that engage in, in cellular respiration and uh, and cleaning up of of uh, waste products in the cell.
0: So there is they something that the
1: plaque.
0: Yeah. Yeah, do, do You think they're physically blocking, or are they? Um, is it are plaques essentially alive mm-hmm. or dead or metabolically okay, active, the, or are they? The, what are they like?
1: The plaques are just gummy goo. They are not alive at all. They are just. Uh, uh, um, just clogging up the brain, and the actual it it they do have a, a physical presence, but it's probably not a mechanical effect. They are probably having some sort of interaction with the uh, the axon. Although you know this is that's mostly speculation. That really hasn't been demonstrated one way or another. Hmm.
0: Is there any uh, th- does the body seem to uh, clear out plaques, and then maybe perhaps is overwhelmed by their accumulation? You know, what do we see in normal people?
1: Yeah, well in normal pe- people the plaques don't accumulate. Um and uh the plaques in the brain are really not cleared very efficiently. There are cells in the brain called microglia that you know, their job is to to clear out those like plaques and, and they actively do engulf the A beta peptide. And so it probably is a balance between uh clearance and accumulation. But the plaques themselves are are fairly resistant to clearance. Um, the the peptide and the oligomer are are
0: more susceptible to clearance. Is there an immune system in the brain, or is there? Um... Sure, yeah, that's what the micro. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know much about it, which is funny now that. Yeah, I'm
1: <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an immune system. It's it's uh, distinctly different from it, the rest of your of your body, the rest of your physiology. The uh, the immune system in the brain is, is a little more primitive. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the the brain is. Uh, is populated by neurons in part, and they are they are what's called post mitotic. And they, they don't replenish as easily as cells in the rest of your body. So you can't really have a super aggressive immune system clearing out all sorts of cells um, and causing toxicity. So um, the brain is, is, is immune privileged in that regard. it, it has a, a more primitive immune system with microglia that do the, uh, the clearance.
0: Have we observed any other coincident Strangeness, you know, uh, changes in the blood-brain barrier or um, effects on parts of the brain that are very distant to where plaques accumulate.
1: Well, the blood-brain barrier does get compromised um, in in Alzheimer's. Is that what you're asking?
0: Right. Yeah. You know, what What other things come along with it besides, or in addition to, the plaque formation and the you know neurons dying and neurodegeneration and the
1: neurons dying? Yeah, I would say that's probably the other main component is is breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. The vasculature becomes unstable. And in fact, um that turns out to be I mean, people have Alzheimer's and they die of it. <clears throat> and one of the main mechanisms by which they they do die is they will um the vasculature in the brain will become so impaired by just the structural breakdown of the brain that uh that it becomes leaky and there's bleeding in the brain.
0: Oh wow. Um any other unusual or uh, incidental findings that may or may not be correlated with the buildup of plaques.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean. Um,
0: well, like if uh, I didn't mention it, you know, I didn't know that the blood-brain barrier and the vasculature is gets compromised. Are there other right. things like that that uh, are either explainable or not explainable that occur?
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, there's there's um, there's hypometabolism in the brain um, that's kind of an early sign of Alzheimer's, and that's it's not known at all how that happens. Um, basically you have insulin insensitivity in the brain. Um, so some people call Alzheimer's, um, diabetes of the brain, uh, which doesn't really mean much. It just, uh, points to the idea and points to the phenomena that there's, there's, uh, decreased, uh, responsiveness to insulin. So there is, there are metabolic changes as well.
0: So even the brain becomes insulin resistant or can become insulin resistant.
1: Right. And diabetes is a risk factor for Alzheimer's, but there's really not a clear mechanistic relationship.
0: Well what happens when um you see a brain that is insulin resistant? I mean what uh, what kind of changes do you see in it?
1: Well you see decreased uh glucose uptake essentially in a PET scan. <laughs> so um, you know, it's uh if somebody comes into the, the clinic um and uh and a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is is sought, um, you, there are a number of things that can be looked at. One is atrophy in the brain, and that you look at the size of different brain regions um, by MRI and, and look for degeneration of, for example, the, the area of the brain that's involved in learning and memory called the hippocampus. Um, <clears throat> often that will be deteriorated, and the area of the brain around the hippocampus um, will will be shrunken. Or can be shrunken, um, and then there's there's uh, metabolism. You look for uh, for um, with a PET scan, you look for uh, decreased um, activity, glucose uptake in the brain. Um, <clears throat> there's also a, a, a diagnostic technique that's recently becoming more used, um, where a compound um, that fluoresces when it comes in contact with plaques is injected into people's bloodstreams, that gets absorbed in the brain, and then that can then be visualized. Um, And you can see if there are actually these glowing spots that correspond to the presence of plaques in the brain.
0: Have um, we observed the start of Alzheimer's in patients and does it seem to correlate with the timeline we established and have we seen any reversals?
1: Well, you know, the only real (laughs) uh, diagnosis that has 100% certainty is uh, Alzheimer's and then, you know, when you uh, dissect their brain and, and, and do an analysis uh, you can see the plaques and, and the tangle. Alzheimer's. So so, some people people are but, diagnosed with Alzheimer's incorrectly, and it turns out to be something like vascular dementia. Hmm, um, okay. So, so, so it's difficult to to answer your question. It's difficult to say. Have there been people who recovered from it? Because if someone were to recover from it, you might say, "Oh, well, they didn't have Alzheimer's." So, really, the short answer is no. Nobody rec- has recovered from Alzheimer's ever.
0: But have patients that have Alzheimer's have, have they had repeated? PET scans to see what's changing and how in the progression, and does that align well, with what's theorized and has there been any slowing of progression or reversal of progression, you know, according to a PET scan on some people
1: There has never been a, a reversal of progression, and there's never really been a treatment that has been shown consistently to affect the progress of the disease. <clears throat> there are a couple drugs <laughs> that are out there that are that mostly treat the symptoms. They, uh, they increase the concentration of a neurotransmitter in the brain or something that will look kind of like a cup of coffee. It'll, it'll boost your brain so that you perform better in the short term, but the actual pathological mechanism of the disease is unaffected. <clears throat> so, I mean, you know, even patients, people who have Alzheimer's disease, they often will fluctuate by the time of day or the day. Some days are good. Some days they're bad. So there is sort of a, um, an inconsistent presentation of the symptoms, but in general, on average, they get worse and worse and worse until they die.
0: Yeah. The reason I'm asking you all these questions is I'm trying to solve the mystery with you right here on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Figure this out. No, yeah,
1: it's great. <laughs> these, are the, these are the mysteries that we grapple with all day, every day.
0: How about um, sleep? You know, I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly the, the brain tissues shrink or pull back or condense in a way to allow clearing out of, uh, you know,
1: yeah, right. That was a very Products exciting paper that came out uh, a couple of years ago, I guess, where uh, where we've shown that the, the concentration of soluble A-beta uh, fluctuates quite a bit between waking and sleeping hours that, that, uh, that um, upon sleep you get uh, basically taking the trash out.
0: Well, have have um, PET scans been done on, for instance, Alzheimer's patients uh, while they were sleeping versus while them being awake, if that's even possible? Hmm. To observe any differences?
1: Yeah, Um, PET scans. I'm not sure. I don't know. Could Hmm. be.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe if people could be sedated in such a way that the brain clears out the trash, just like when sleeping, you know, to emulate that, and then uh, right, right, just just put it in a medically induced coma. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. know, know. Um, When people have Alzheimer's, do they tend to have problems sleeping? Does it affect their sleep?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. It, it often uh, impairs sleep, and that's one of the recommendations: is you engage in sleep hygiene, as you make sure you get you know, eight hours of sleep, eight hours plus a night, um, in order to try and give yourself some defense against contracting Alzheimer's.
0: Well, what does Alzheimer's appear to do to someone's sleep pattern? They just they have, uh, they wake you, up early you, or they can't sleep.
1: Yeah, usually usually don't uh, they do wake up early? They get less sleep at night. Their sleep is less. Uh, you know. You know, sleep as soundly. Hmm. Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I just wonder if what the uh, the correlation is and if any therapies, you know, again, if the brain changes what it does while you sleep, I wonder if that would be a time for certain therapies that would work better than other times. Is there's more clearance perhaps for uh, right. I don't know, well, small molecule stimulating drugs that around in there?
1: Is, well, stimulating clearance mechanisms is the idea behind most of those drug trials and the way they've done it is to generate antibodies against um A beta primarily <clears throat> so that um the body's immune system will clear from the brain um hmm. and as I say, these have not been effective clinically and and we don't know why, but we speculate that it's because um the disease is just too far progressed by the time you start clearing out that initial. Toxic insult of the amyloid protein, the brain is already dying and there's nothing to be done.
0: When people say the studies have failed, does that mean they've like completely failed or there's been a little bit of an effect or it's just been a no? A little here? bit
1: of a little bit of an effect would be a success. If we could even slow down the rate of progression, that would be a success. Uh, all of them have failed
0: uh,
1: pretty conclusively. If so um, no change to the rate of progression of the disease.
0: Okay. If diabetes possibly is a risk factor, and if the brain has uh, insulin, in, insulin resistance, have any of these trials controlled for diet? You know, had some folks on a regular diet versus some on a low-carb or ketogenic diet, for instance, to see the effects or control? Yeah, for it I'm all.
1: actually not, not that familiar with the literature uh, regarding um, trials and diet. I know there's epidemiological data that shows that a Mediterranean diet um, is associated with a cre- decreased incidence of Alzheimer's. Um, but I'm not not familiar with actual trials of, uh, of diet. They may have been done. I'm just not sure.
0: Yeah, it's kind of mysterious because uh, a separate trial on diet is one thing, but I would think when they're doing these trials, if you controlled for diet, it would make for a better you know, clinical trial because that's just one right. factor that varies. You know? Yeah, well... And it, it could be a big one.
1: <laughs> yes, but I'll tell you it's a lot easier to design a really good trial than it is to actually conduct one. Getting people to comply with uh, just just taking the drug in the first place is a big challenge, Um, but getting them to change their lifestyle, uh, their eating habits while you're doing it, especially for something like Alzheimer's where you need a trial that takes place over many years (laughs) and and you need thousands of people to participate, um, actually enforcing something like that really
0: becomes impossible. Mm, Okay. And then, uh, I've been asking you 8 million questions, but w- so what? Yeah. what is your research focused on specifically? So,
1: um, well, you know, like I say, we uh, we found this receptor that's on neurons that the A beta protein binds to, to have its toxic effect. And that suggested um, a site, a, a focus of action where we might be able to design a drug that would bind to the receptor, and compete with a beta peptide, a beta protein, so that it couldn't bind the receptor. And that's in fact what we did. And we uh, uh, developed a biochemical assay and uh, screen uh, tens of thousands of of potential candidates, uh, chemicals, um, for the ability to block the interaction between the receptor, which is called PRP, and a beta toxin. Um, we actually found that uh, so the the molecule that we focused on, <clears throat> it binds PRP in this active site, in the, the in the region of the PRP that interacts with A beta um, in a fairly broad way. It's actually very unusual for um, a drug. Uh, most drugs are small molecules and they have a low molecular weight. Um, the one we discovered is a polymer and it's much higher molecular weight than is typically thought of as being uh, developable as a therapeutic but we found that when we administered it to uh, to mice we either could either inject it directly into their brain <clears throat> or with a, a subsequent um, uh, generation of of molecules of that type we can even administer it peripherally the the initial one we found was a uh, degradant of an antibiotic a cephalosporin antibiotic called ceftazidime um, and we tried giving ceftazidime just un you know regular fresh ceftazidime unaged to mice and it had no effect, but when it's aged, it degrades. It spontaneously forms this new compound, which is this polymer, this active polymer. And when it's injected into the brain, it rescues the mice. Their synapses regrow, their memories get back to normal, as though they never had Alzheimer's. And then this, this next generation that we invented, um, we can administer that peripherally. It doesn't get into the brain very efficiently because it's so big and it can't cross the blood-brain barrier very well. But it does enough. It's a very potent compound, and it gets into the brain enough to have an effect. And again, cause the synapses to regenerate and the the behavior of the mice to recover to normal.
0: How do you you think it's, what is its method of action, you think?
1: Oh, it blocks the interaction between A-beta and an PRP receptor. That's it. So normally you have these these clumps of protein, right? The soluble aggregates of A-beta floating around the brain. And uh, they bind the receptor, and that's how you know the neurons, when they feel that, they die, or the synapses retract, and over a period of years, they die. <laughs> so the idea was, if you, instead of trying to remove the A-beta from the brain, which is what all these trials have done and, and, and have all failed doing, uh, well, they, they succeeded in removing A-beta from the brain, but they failed in in, uh, in actually having it, uh, a rescue of humans. Um, so we thought instead of trying to remove the plaque, we can render it inert by preventing its interaction with this receptor. So so we leave the structure of the brain intact. We don't worry about the A-beta that's there. We apply this drug, and it prevents the toxic action of A-beta. It's kind of a novel way to approach the problem.
0: That's weird, though. I mean, a couple of weird things. Why would there be a receptor on neurons for something that's toxic to them? Mm-hmm. It kind of doesn't make sense why that would be there.
1: Well, that's not its normal function. I mean, the, the normal function of the PRP protein is a matter of active study. Um, there are a lot of a lot of ideas about <clears throat> what it does. It also happens to be the protein that causes mad cow disease. Um, so when it misfolds, so its its purpose is not there to be destructive. Its purpose is there to conduct other things. But when things go haywire in the brain, right, um, it starts having a, a pathological effect.
0: Hmm. I've also and heard and and some. Uh... Go ahead, Ben.
1: No, I was just going to say, you know, um, that, uh, you know, we all we all die for a reason. We all age and and uh, and, you know, break down because, you know, evolution wouldn't happen otherwise. You need to get old people out of the way so that they don't compete for resources with the young people to, you know, conduct their lives. So there's really no selective pressure to to prevent toxicity of you know, your various aspects of, of uh dysfunctional physiology when you're old it's actually in some cases better to get you old and dead to get you out of the way so that the offspring can survive that's just sort of a philosophical thing about how evolution works and why you know well why would you have something work work in your brain why hasn't evolution weeded out these toxic effects well there's no selective pressure to get old people to survive in fact right it's better
0: to get them out of the way from an evolutionary standpoint so we don't. No one understands what PRP does or how it functions yet.
1: Well, um, there are ideas that it's involved in in uh, copper ion binding and um, and uh, toxicity mediation in the brain. That it's a, a anti toxic uh, function, but like I say, it's still a matter of open investigation.
0: And this is kind of a crazy idea, but you know, I I seem to remember that certain people that are drug addicts. I don't know what drug it was, either cocaine or MDMA or whatever it was. It would cause synapses in their brain uh, to build too many connections and build them with strange spots. You know, instead of things pulling back and dying, it would actually encourage them to just grow, but kind of grow crazily. Randomly. So they had an yeah. overload of connections in the brain. I, I, maybe it's crazy, but I wonder if that would um, maybe help in Alzheimer's. You know, maybe <laughs> it would just send things in the wrong direction, but maybe it would help. Uh...
1: Maybe I don't know about that drug. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that.
0: Just because of the the method of what it does to the brain. That's that's why. Right, I right. My head. Sure, you
1: want to counter the synapse destruction by by giving it a little goose, right?
0: <laughs> by the wrong goose. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, it's a uh, yeah. I I get into it and try to figure it out.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's that matter of our profession has come up with ideas like that. Well. If this is happening, what about that? And just basically do a thought experiment and then see how they, they pan out at the bench.
0: So, so you said when um, certain drugs have been able to remove the plaques in the brain, but it had no yeah, effect?
1: Anti- Antibody-based drugs, typically. And they work in mice, but they don't work in humans. And again, probably because we're just doing it too late if they were applied early. And and this is the general thinking in in the industry now. And there are efforts to try and identify families. And there's a study going on in Columbia where there's a a, a group of families that all have a mutation that give them Alzheimer's very early. So this enables uh, a test of antibodies that will clear the plaque administered even before they get overt signs of Alzheimer's. You know that because you have this mutation, you're gonna get Alzheimer's in your 50s or early 60s. So as a result, if they start treating people in their late 40s and then monitor their their progression, it's possible to see that if treating the the disease early uh, with an anti-amyloid therapy will have an effect. And this is specifically to address the question of whether or not the amyloid hypothesis is correct. Is it really the the A beta peptide that's that's causing the disease? Again, you know, most of us believe that, but um, it hasn't yet been definitively proven. And because all of these um, all of these uh, clinical trials that have addressed the disease late in its progression have failed, they're trying to de- address it um, in an amyloid clearing with an amyloid clearing strategy <clears throat> early in the disease to demonstrate that it actually is this timing issue. That if we can uh, address the disease early with an A-beta-directed treatment, it will have an effect.
0: And um, what was the uh, incidence of Alzheimer's, you know, I don't know, historically, and what is it now? Is it increasing, and what is it?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's tough to say because uh, people are living with Alzheimer's, but also the resolution of Alzheimer's getting better. Our diagnostic capabilities are getting better. I mean, now we have these these chemical tools, you know, the, the uh, uh, PET scans and and so on that are, are getting higher resolution, um, you know, before we just, oh, they're senile or they're getting old, you know, they got old, old you know, old timer's disease. It, uh, you know, wasn't really uh, the records that have existed previously are not really comparable to the present records. So um, it's uh, probably relatively the same. It's just a matter of diagnostics, you know, differently effective diagnostics.
0: Well, what appears to be the rate, what percentage of the population gets it?
1: Well, uh so it's the sixth leading cause of death in the US. It's uh you know if you if you're over 85 um uh I believe the statistics are that there's a 50% chance that uh, you're going to get Alzheimer's.
0: Um
1: well, wow. yeah, it's uh it it's a tremendous problem. I mean, many other diseases have yielded to to you know modern uh, medicinal chemistry and you know basic biological understanding of disease mechanisms.
0: Hmm. People
1: die of most other high-risk diseases. You know we're treating stroke and so forth, but um, but Alzheimer's um, increasing the cause of death because we keep people alive long enough to die of Alzheimer's.
0: Hmm. It. I mean, it's like what, 200.
1: Yeah.
0: What about uh, early onset? Is that when? When does that happen? What does that look like? And has that been changing, increasing, decreasing? Yeah.
1: So you know, early onset is a result. So most most Alzheimer's disease is what's what we call idiopathic, which means we don't know what causes it. Really, we don't really know. Um, That's right. like ninety five at least percent of Alzheimer's is idiopathic, and there are some genes that will increase your uh, chances of getting idiopathic Alzheimer's, um, but there is a small percentage of Alzheimer's disease, less than 5%, that can be caused with 100% certainty by mutation in a couple of genes. Those genes produce more of the A-beta peptide in the brain and cause you to get plaques a lot sooner. And they're actually in one of the, the mutations that produces the A-beta peptide. So this is one of the strongest pieces of evidence that is amyloid hypothesis that, that is the most likely explanation for Alzheimer's disease. Um, Initiation that if you get a, a mutation in the gene that encodes the A-beta peptide, and you get one of these particular mutations, you will get a lot more A-beta in your brain than you would would normally by a certain age, and you will get Alzheimer's with virtually 100%. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the early onset Alzheimer's. Almost all early onset Alzheimer's disease cases are a result, or, or most of them anyway. And, uh, are a result of a mutation in one of the genes that causes an increase in the buildup of the amyloid protein. Hmm.
0: All right. So what, um, I mean, what appears to be the promising future for your you work know, over the next few years? What do you think, uh, <laughs> where are you headed with it?
1: Well, you know, we have uh, a number of experiments that we've published that look at different components of this pathway, right? Downstream of A beta binding to the PrP receptor, um, there are biochemical changes that take place in the neuron, and there are ways to manipulate those changes. And we've looked at those either pharmacologically or genetically, and in most cases have rescued the mice. So basically, marching through the biochemistry that's downstream of A beta in the brain that that exerts this toxic effect. So, uh, so it's our hope that one of these these uh, focal points of interaction, of intercession, um, will result in some actual clinical efficacy. We've got most of these targets. I mean, this The one that I developed against the, the PRP protein, that's a candidate. There are more conventional uh, drugs, more small molecule uh, drugs that, that target some of the enzymes that are downstream of the receptor and activation of the receptor by A beta. Mm. Those have worked in mice. Um, and so it's our hope that we can uh, marshal the resources uh, to get some clinical trials accomplished with, with these various um, strategies.
0: It, it seems to be uh, a lot easier to, you know, improve the lives of mice than people, unfortunately.
1: Well, it is. You can control the mice a lot more easily. And clinical trials are tough to do. Very expensive. And, you know, uh hmm. Pharmaceutical companies are are justifiably cautious about putting a lot of resources. They only have so much money, even though they've got a lot, and the FDA hurdles are are steep. And so it it takes a lot of money to conduct a clinical trial, especially something, an indication like Alzheimer's, It's just takes so long to evaluate the efficacy of treatment for.
0: How long does it it take to evaluate?
1: uh, Well, uh, five years at least, five to ten years to do a clinical trial for Alzheimer's.
0: and when yeah, someone has Alzheimer's, how long does the how long do they have it before they pass from it?
1: Uh, it's an average of ten years since the time of diagnosis to the time of death.
0: Gotcha. Right? Okay. Um, yeah.
1: So you know, to answer your question a, a little more definitively about you know how long will the clinical trial take? It depends on how well the drug works. If the drug cures you right away. Then it's not going to take very long to see a difference between people that are are gradually progressing in Alzheimer's and people who have you know been cured of the disease. Their memories are going to improve, and and the 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 curve is going to go in an opposite direction, and that would be readily discernible. Um, whereas if you are, if you have something that would decrease the rate at which you are getting worse you know, then the being able to separate those curves is going to take longer to resolve. That resolution will take longer. So it's really difficult to to give you, I gave you a pat answer of, you know, five to 10 years, but it really depends on how effective the drug is.
0: Okay. Well, the ballpark works. Hmm. Well, very good. So what's the best way for folks to learn more about your research and uh, maybe to, you know, talk to you about collaboration or ideas?
1: Huh. Well, um, there's, uh, you know, most of our work's published in the scientific literature. So, um I, I certainly would in, encourage people to read scientific journals. <laughs> um, the uh, To learn more about uh, ours, I suppose they could uh, look at our lab website. It's the Strip Water Lab. Yeah. S-T-R-I-T-T-M-A-T-T-E-R.
0: Okay. Well, very good, Eric. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and thanks for sharing your knowledge.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure. Nice talking to you.